Avinu, our Father, thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you for what you've already done, Lord. We pray that your word would go forth to edify, to encourage, and build up your people, O God. Um, That you would, by your Ruach, by your Holy Spirit, speak to each person what you would have for them, O God. You would multiply um, the words that um, it would be a blessing to this uh, community. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. In the year 1263, does anybody remember that year? Anyone old enough to remember? Robert? (laughs) He raised his hand. I didn't call him out. It was uh, 1263 in Barcelona, Spain. There was a debate. There was a debate between two men, representatives of Judaism and Christianity, on whether or not Yeshua was the Messiah. There were a lot of such debates, and they were known as disputations. Um, And this one is perhaps the most famous. Um, It was sponsored by King James I of Aragon, and uh, representing Judaism was Nachmanides. Uh, He was also known as the Ramban. He was one of the great medieval rabbis. Representing Christianity was Friar Pablo Cristiani, He was a a Dominican priest. Now, it just so happened that Friar Pablo was also Jewish, but he had converted, so he took the name Christiani. His his name was Pablo or Shaul. Um, And what made uh, this disputation special is that Nachmanides, uh, Ramban, had free reign from the king to speak Uh, his mind, to criticize Yeshua, to criticize the church, so to have a healthy debate. Remember, this was during the time of the Inquisition, when these things kind of got, could get a little dicey. Um, uh, And the unfortunate thing is that, by most accounts, Friar Pablo lost the debate. So this morning, I figured I could help him out a little bit. You know, I hope it's not too late it's only 500 years or so late, but uh, give or take, 600. But uh, I thought maybe I could uh, give him some advice, one Jewish disciple of Yeshua to another. So for one thing, one thing uh, they focused the debate mostly on the Talmud, okay? And I think this was a mistake. Now, the Talmud is a great resource in Judaism. It has a lot of insight. It has tradition. Uh, debate and midrash, a lot of uh, what we do in the synagogue and our service is based on the writings of the Talmud. And uh, it, it kind of helps fill in the gaps of scripture when there's, you know, um, it's very helpful. But it is not scripture. It's not inspired canon. It's not part of the Torah or the Tanakh, which is holy and eternal. So I think that was one mistake. All right, so let's, let's dive in. Let's see the arguments that Nachmanides made. So this is a quote from the Jewish virtual library. This is uh, what, uh, what it says. Nachmanides, and I quote, even went on to attack the Ill, illogicality, not logical, in Christian dogma concerning the nature of the divinity. Some of his utterances hint at the future destruction of Christendom. He referred slightingly to the fate of Jesus, who was persecuted in his own lifetime, let's remember this, and hid from his pursuers. So he was criticizing that. 
Uh, Rome, which had been a mighty empire before Jesus lived, declined after adopting Christianity. And now the servants of Muhammad have a greater realm than they. Nachmanides also made the point that from the time of Jesus until the present, the world has been filled with violence and injustice, and the Christians have shed more blood than all other peoples. He similarly attacked the whole concept of the combination of human and divine attributes in Jesus. And that was unquote from here on. So let's summarize his, his critique. Yeshua, first he says, Yeshua was, was denigrated because he was persecuted in his own lifetime and he hid from his pursuers. <sighs> if only there were a prophet in the Hebrew scriptures who, filled, who fit that description. You know, that would kind of show that Yeshua continues the narrative of, narrative of Israel as laid out in the Torah. Trying to think, uh, can we think of anyone that hid from his, maybe uh, Elijah? Elijah? Elijah's life was threatened by Jezebel after he confronted the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. King David, he fled. Jeremiah referred to himself as a gentle lamb to the slaughter. Zechariah. Zechariah was stoned to death for getting Israel, for getting Israel to, um, he was rebuking their idolatry. Okay? So let the record show the names of Elijah, Jeremiah, King David, Zechariah, among many others. Israel rejected and persecuted her prophets. So this would bolster the legitimacy of Yeshua. Ramban Nachmanides then notes that Rome fell after adopting Christianity. But a look at the narrative of the book of Daniel would have taken down this argument. Rome and all earthly kingdoms will fade, but the kingdom of Messiah will never fade away. The kingdom of Yeshua is not a political reign, but it is a reign of a king who saves us from sin. So Ramban then says that the so-called Christians have committed many acts of violence throughout history, including anti-Jewish violence. At this point, I have to concede. Done in the name of Jesus, in the name of Yeshua, using the symbol of the cross, persecution and violence has come, especially for the Jews. What can we say to this argument but that we have to pray for the redemption of this tragedy. In Romans 11, Rabbi Shaul gives some advice to the Gentile followers of Yeshua, and this is what he says. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people, the Jewish people, to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be, what? Life from the dead. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast 
as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. So there are Gentiles in history who did follow this advice of Paul's in Romans, but many did not. The pogroms, the Inquisition, the persecution of Jews by those who claimed to follow Yeshua stunted the spread of the real gospel of Yeshua. Here is a quote from the transcript of the debate. Uh, given in, This is from now from the first person from the perspective of the Ramban, and this is what he says. I said to him, it is true that the rabbis in the Agata explain it as referring to the Messiah. However, they never said that he would be killed at the hands of his enemies. For you will find in no book of the Jews, neither in the Talmud nor in the Midrash, that the Messiah, the descendant of David, would be killed or would be turned over to his enemies or would be buried among the wicked. Indeed, even the Messiah, whom you made for yourself, was not buried. I shall explain for you this section properly and clearly, if you wish. There is no indication that the Messiah would be killed, as happened to your Messiah. They, however, did not wish to hear, unquote. Now, this simply does not fit with the narrative of Scripture. For we saw the persecution of the prophets, that many were killed or had attempts on their lives. And here we come to the famous passage of Isaiah 53. Even if you ignore the obvious references to Yeshua, you have to admit it sounds like the Messiah dies in this, is buried among the wicked, and then is raised. Right? So let's look at the plain meaning of the text. I'm going to read, let's read it together perhaps. This is Isaiah 53, the whole chapter. Together. Who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him, but his appearance did not attract us. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains, well acquainted with illness, like someone from whom people turn their faces. He was despised. We did not value him. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. We all, like sheep, have went astray. We turned each one to his own way. Adonai laid on him the guilt of all of us. Though mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away, and none of his generation protested. His being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserved the punishment themselves. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death, he was with a rich man, although he had done no violence. 
and had said nothing deceptive. Yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And at his hand, Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After this ordeal, he will see satisfaction by his knowing pain and sacrifice. My righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore, I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty. For having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners, while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. Now, it's kind of a long chapter, but this is in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it describes, obviously, Yeshua. It describes a man that he died, and then, then it says that the Lord will prolong his days. So how is that possible? How are those two things possible in the same chapter except that he would be raised? This is directly contrary to what the Ramban said. Ramban argued that Isaiah 53 was about Israel. And Friar Pablo said, no, no, it's about Yeshua. Well, which one was right? Why can't they both be right? (laughs) After all, Yeshua fulfilled the narrative of the suffering servant. He was the ideal Israel. But the text definitely favors the understanding that it's a single Messiah. And this narrative fits Yeshua perfectly. How can Israel suffer and intercede for herself? Right? How can Israel make Israel righteous by suffering on her behalf? There has to be some distinction there. How can it be said of Israel that she has done no violence, has done nothing wrong, but was counted as if she had sinned? Is that true? No. Right? No one who has read the scriptures thinks about Israel as blameless or without sin, able to intercede for those who have sinned. The text must be about the Messiah. So now we turn from the focus on Ramban's argument and the criticism to the criticism of the miracles, okay? And this is uh, another thing that Ramban said, and I quote, and I found this um, also, um, this idea on, uh, this is still an argument that is portrayed today by uh, counter-missionaries. So this is still relevant, even though it's 600 years old. The mind of any Jew or any man will not permit him to believe that the creator of heaven and earth and all that is therein would pass through the womb of a Jewish woman to develop there for seven months, at which point an infant was born, who is supposedly God, and who afterwards grew up and later was turned over into the hands of his enemies, who judged him, condemned him to death, and killed him. You then claim, finally, that he became alive and returned to his former state of divinity, unquote. Now, some of these I've already disputed, but let's examine the virgin birth. Is there precedence for a miraculous birth in the scriptures? Yes. The narrative of Abraham and Sarah having Isaac. This was supposedly impossible, right? How about the criticism that 
Hashem, how could God possibly dwell in a person? Well, if you look at the narrative of Scripture, Hashem speaks through his angels all the time as if it was God, right? All throughout the narrative of Scripture, Hashem appears to Abraham as a man. In Jewish thought and Jewish theology, God indwells his Torah, his word. The prologue to John's gospel, which, by the way, is a Jewish text, right? It describes how the word was with God and the word was God. It evokes this idea of indwelling. In Proverbs 8, verses 20 through 31, God dwells with wisdom and through wisdom. This is what it says. Adonai made me, speaking of wisdom, as the beginning of his way, the first of his ancient works. I was appointed before the world, before the start, before the earth's beginnings. When I was brought forth, there were no ocean depths, no springs brimming with water. I was brought forth before the hills, before the mountains had settled in place. He had not yet made the earth, the fields, or even the earth's first grains of dust, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew the horizon circle on the deep, when he set the skies above in place, when the fountains of the deep poured forth, when he prescribed boundaries for the sea so that its water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, I was with him as someone he could trust. For me, every day was pure delight as I played in his presence all the time playing everywhere on his earth and delighting to be with humankind. This is the wisdom in Proverbs 8. And to top it off, doesn't the Lord dwell in a donkey at one point to correct a man who is setting out to curse Israel? In other words, there is precedence for the Lord's indwelling and pretty much doing whatever he wants to do. There's no limit to what God can do. If Hashem should choose to indwell in his fullness, the Messiah, this would be in agreement with the narrative of Scripture and with his prerogatives. Should we marvel at the incarnation of God in Yeshua the Messiah? Yes. Is it beyond reason or beyond the narrative of Scripture? By no means. I enjoy looking at how Yeshua fulfilled Messianic prophecies in the Tanakh. The Hebrew scriptures describe where the Messiah was to be born and from what tribe and probably when he was to be born and all of these Yeshua fulfills. But I am more compelled by the narratives, the stories in scripture. Now by stories, I don't mean that they are merely stories, but I mean that we can look at scripture as a narrative or a story that explains what God is doing and how he relates to Israel, how he relates to all of humanity. Prophecies can be debated, and you can argue about the translation of words and interpretations and the specifics, but narrative, this cannot be debated away, and it's in the text, and it refers to Yeshua. We have just read through the whole book of Genesis in our parashot, concluding with the remarkable story of Joseph. Joseph, rejected by his brothers, humbled as a servant, even sent to prison, 
raised up to be the prime minister of Egypt and saves the 12 tribes of Israel in the known world from famine. Joseph was about his father's business. The savior in this narrative is rejected by his brothers, but has in mind God's plan. And after Judah passes the character test and is willing to give his life in exchange for Benjamin, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and extends forgiveness. He says, I am Yosef, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt, but don't be sad. Don't be sad that you sold me into slavery here or angry at yourselves because it was God who sent me ahead of you to preserve life. So what is the narrative of Joseph speaking to us today? Joseph's brothers, especially Judah, represent the Jewish people. That's where uh, the word Jewish comes from, from from the word from Judah. After Judah, um, so his brothers have, have a strange relationship with their father, Jacob, because of the way they've rejected Joseph, who is their brother. Perhaps this represents the Jewish people strained in their relationship with their father in heaven because of their rejection, in part, of their brother, Yeshua the Messiah. Getting things right with Joseph is the brother's only hope of making things right with Jacob again. But we know that it is Jacob's heart to reveal himself to his brothers, not as an Egyptian ruler, but as their brother. And likewise, it is Yeshua's heart to reveal himself to Israel, not merely as the savior of the world, which he is, but also as the long-awaited Messiah, Mashiach of Israel. And we are now embarking on the parashot, which bring us through Exodus, where the Israelites rely on the blood of the Lamb to save them from the last curse. Even in the book of Revelation, Yeshua appears in this fashion as the Lamb, reminding us of his connection to the Passover narrative. In Revelation 5, verses 1 through 6, this is what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a what? A lamb looking as if it had been slain. The slain lamb in heaven. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. If we are looking for a Messiah who fulfills the narrative of Israel in the Tanakh, who brings it to its logical conclusion, let us look to Yeshua. Let us continue to look to Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Avinu, our Father, we thank you for 
all of the uh, these stories, um, all of this this narrative that you've given us in your scripture, O oh Lord. Thank you um, that we can see Yeshua in those narratives, O oh Lord. Help us to make those connections. Help us to follow him, to trust in him, O oh God. Help us to um, to be faithful to you, O oh Lord, and uh, to to have these stories in our hearts, to write, we pray that you would write Torah on our hearts, Lord. Write, write this narrative, write, um, write your word on our hearts, Lord, that we can follow you faithfully, oh God. And we thank you for the revelation uh, that you give when we search your scriptures, when we come to know you, oh Lord. We thank you for the beauty that is therein that points to Yeshua the Messiah and helps us in our daily walk with you. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen.